We look today at the Lord's Supper, grateful for the children's message this morning that covered the topic so well. Like last week, we're going to be looking at more of a big picture. We're going to be looking at the things that frame in or fence in the sacraments, specifically focusing on the Lord's Supper today. We could drill down and find out exactly what kind of grapes we should be using, exactly what kind of bread we should be using, and I've got opinions about that, but that's not the point. The point is to see what structures, what stories, how the whole of Scripture supports and celebrates the Lord's Supper. And that's the big picture we'll be looking at today. Most evangelicals have a very breezy attitude towards the Lord's Supper and towards the sacraments in general, but especially the Lord's Supper. At least our Baptist brothers and sisters have kept the flame alive for baptism. They've been uh, encouraging and talking about it and celebrating it, notching. I was met with a group of ministers recently, and it was all Baptist except for me and and one other guy from a Sovereign Grace Church. And all the Baptists, they went around. Here's how many baptisms we did last this year so far. We've got so-and-so more to go before we get to, to 20, our goal for this year. And I was like, man, how many times have people said that about the Lord's Supper? Yeah, I've taken the Lord's Supper four times this year. My goal is 20, so I've got to go, and I've got to go to an Anglican church maybe. I think they serve it more. And I... Now, we don't think in those terms. We don't have a passion for the table the way many parts of the body of Christ have a passion for baptism. And there's something not right about that, because I think the Baptists are on the right track in their passion for baptism but somewhere along the line the folks on the Protestant most of the folks on the Protestant side lost their passion for the Lord's Supper and we know of a variety of reasons historically that we could go into as to why that is most of all it's too Catholic we don't want to be like the Catholics And so we need to be careful and not be like the Catholics. Do the Catholics do the Lord's Supper weekly? Well then, I'm not going to do the Lord's Supper weekly. Do they believe that Jesus is truly present in the elements? Then I'm not going to believe that. But contra-Catholic is not the same as pro-biblical. You can't just do the opposite of what the people that you don't like are doing and think that's the same thing as conforming your life to the scriptures. And so some of the things that I will say today and that I believe the scriptures say are going to make your Roman Catholic meter go off. And there's not not much I can do about that because there's language in the Bible that they got their teachings from, okay? Now, there's Aristotelian metaphysics as well over here on the side that informs the way they talk about it, and it gets weird from that point on. And I'm not advocating that. I'm advocating what the scriptures speak. And so when I say today that the Bible teaches that we are receiving Christ's body and blood at the Lord's table, I'm not saying I'm a Roman Catholic. I want you to be a Roman Catholic. And that's what this whole deal has been about, was me sneaking in to a nice, innocent little PCA church and flipping it. That's not what's going on here. 
We're going to be looking at the unity of Scripture. We're going to be looking at how covenant theology and how the power of implicit arguments and the nature and origin of the Lord's Supper all work together to frame and fence the idea of Christ being before us and God and man at table sitting down together to eat. But this week, we're going to look at it in reverse. Last week, we started with the unity of Scripture and worked our way to nature and origin. But really, when you look at the nature and origin of the Lord's Supper, it works out everything else. So we're just going to start at the end this week. I think you're going to see the unity of Scripture is supported and boosted by this discussion. You'll see covenant theology, not just as you enter into it, supporting supporting the Lord's Supper, but you're going to see covenant theology informed and supported by it. All relationships, all relationships are beautified around a meal. I want you to think about, those of you who are married, think about the first meal you sat down with your spouse-to-be. Do you remember what was served? Do you remember what you drank? Do you remember where you were, the name of the restaurant? Think of those special times you've had with your beloved around a table, over breakfast. Those were special times. When I think about my uh, upbringing in Mississippi, some of the most special times was around the dinner table. It was having gone out into Mamo and Papa's garden, and there was a green apple tree out there, and I would pick apples... And I would come inside, and my mamma and I would make fried apple pies. And she would have the dough already made, and she would cut it out, and she would give me uh, the fork. And I'd, ma- I'd put that in there, put the apples in there. We would cook a little bit down, just a little bit before we put them in there. And I'd go around there and mash that down. And we'd put, the, we'd put those pies in some magic liquid and fry them up. <laughs> And I, every time we burnt our mouths, it was like a ritual. We couldn't wait until they were cool. And every time we would burn our mouths eating those pies sitting around that table. I could just boohoo for 20 minutes talking about that more and about those events of sitting around a table eating with my family and with my friends Back in Mississippi. It's where you achieve this state of communion with people that goes beyond fuel. I think discovering the richness of the covenant meal that God has set before us in the Lord's Supper, in a sense, is identifying those human stories that have impacted us so deeply, and then asking ourselves the question, why doesn't the Lord's Supper impact me like that? 
What, what's going on that I have so little emotional, relational connection when I am seated at the table of the Lord with all my brothers and sisters? What's going on there? And that sort of curiosity can then fuel our investigation of this. We start discovering the richness of the covenant meal that God has laid before us in the Garden of Eden by just looking at God's own commands and the way he lays out their mission. Alexander Sheeman says that God created man hungry and invited him to eat. And what did he invite him to eat? Every seed-bearing plant and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. Now, it's notable that the menu for the meal comes immediately after the command to fill and subdue and rule the earth. We need food in order to rule, but the text reverses that so that we subdue the earth in order to enjoy its fruits. Food is not fuel for the worker so much as it is feasting for kings, as it is feasting for queens and princes and princesses who are preparing to rule, who are preparing to reign. God places two trees in the garden, and he plants that he plants in the east of Eden. Many have pointed out that the garden was the original sanctuary, the designated place from which the creator would meet with man and woman. From the very beginning, God met with human beings while they ate. That was where he met them. The first Adam broke Eden's table communion by God by eating the wrong fruit. But Jesus comes then as the last Adam to restore that communion. He eats and he drinks with prostitutes with sinners, and finally gives his life, his body, his blood for the life of the world. On the tree of the cross, he becomes life-giving fruit from which he commands us to eat and drink. And so you fast forward from there then, we fast forwarded from the garden to the cross, and then to when communion will be consummated, You get to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation. From Eden to the New Jerusalem, food and word are the way that we have fellowship with with God. It's the way he's ordained that we have fellowship with him. Now, long before Jesus took bread and, and gave thanks, bread was already more than bread. It already had meaning imparted and baked into it. Think about this. When's the first time that bread becomes really significant in the Bible? Where's the first big deal that bread comes up in the Old Testament? Okay, Abraham, when the visitors are coming and he lays out, and sets up a meal for them and communes with the visitors. You've got the manna that comes down from heaven. 
In the wilderness, Israel ate the bread of angels, says Psalm 78. And priests offer cakes and loaves on the altar in Leviticus 2. And the and animal and offerings there are described as the bread of God. The tabernacle and the temple, their partial restorations of the Edenic table fellowship. So that once again, God and man could dine together again. The first thing that happened when the children of Israel were rescued and freed from Egypt and had the law set before them so that they could walk in a holy manner before him was the institution of a tabernacle. And we tend to think of the tabernacle as, oh, that was a place for uh, worship. Got it. But... The implements of worship, as you look there, were tables and, and bread and wine and things to eat. That was how they worshipped. And they immediately set up a big tent to do that in. And the Lord consumed his bread in fire while Israel ate and drank and rejoiced before him in all the feasts of the Old Testament. And so that's how the theme of a covenant meal begins to weave its way through the scriptures. And the origin of Christians then taking bread and wine and sitting down together and communing with God in the new Passover. It already had a rich history in it. Now in John 6, though... Jesus runs into the first bump in the road in his ministry in John chapter 6 when he starts talking about communion, when he starts talking about the Lord's Supper, when he starts talking about his own body and blood being eaten and drank. Now, it wasn't just because Jesus chose a yucky illustration in order to make his point, but he did. Seriously, Jesus, that was the yuckiest illustration that you could have given to have made your point. It's memorable. We're talking about it today. All the writers of Scripture wrote it down. But in droves, people turned and walked away from Jesus. But it wasn't just because he had chosen something yucky to make his illustration. It was because they knew the history of bread and wine. They knew he was claiming to be the source of food. That he was claiming to be the nourishing God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it wasn't just because they were yucked out because of what he had said. It was because they understood he was implicitly claiming deity. He was claiming to be the, the feeding God. So from that same food, the same food that fed Israel in the wilderness, the same wine of gladness the psalmist sings about, it was flowing from Jesus to those who were in covenant with him. And he invited them to come and eat and drink and celebrate. Now, these sacraments... As we heard in the children's sermon, we talk about them as signs and seals. They are signs that point to Jesus and his finished work for us. And they are seals or marks upon us that show we are the property of Jesus. That's why we Presbyterians make a big deal out of public communion and not private. 
Because taking communion privately, no one knows you're doing it. And that sort of misses the mark of it being a seal on you. Like a private baptism, for instance. If I were to take one of you and baptize you in a big bathtub in your house. You call me up. I want you to baptize me in a big bathtub like Justin Bieber or something. You know, it's one of those situations. Uh, You know, that's a private baptism and that kind of misses the mark of a public display of God's mark upon you. Baptism shows we are in his church and the Lord's Supper shows that we're nourished by him and are depending on Christ. And we do that publicly. Now, that's the sweeping view. Have I left things out? Of course. But that's a sweeping view of the whole Bible on the elements of the Lord's Supper. And as we look at the passage of Scripture today in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we want to keep that big view in mind on the origin of the Lord's Supper and how eating and drinking holds this enormous theme in and through all the covenants and promises that God has made with his people. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 10 now. Open up your scriptures and look there at 1 Corinthians 10. And I'm looking at 16 and 17. 16 and 17 is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. And is it not bread that we break? Isn't it a participation in the blood of Christ? Because there's one loaf, and we who are many are one body, and we all share that one loaf. Now, this Eucharistic wine, this cup of thanksgiving, it has in it a sweetness and a bitterness. It has in it a burn as well as a blessing. It has in it a celebration, but also a memory of Christ's own death for us. That bitter taste. The broken bread of heaven is also a taste of his body, which clearly has a double meaning because we're not only united to Christ and him in us, but we're united to each other. And that's the kind of mystery that we're drinking into and and biting into. Thomas Aquinas said that natural food is digested and turns into us. But spiritual food does the opposite. It turns us into itself. Think about that. Drinking the wine of the grape. We're united to Christ's suffering and celebration. We're called to take up our cross and follow Him and join in the victory party. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we transform creation into bread and wine in order to be transformed into a hospitable, nourishing presence in the world. That brings up an interesting question. A question I'm going to poke you just a little bit about, and then I'm going to back off. But I want to poke you a little bit. I've noticed that here at Evergreen, we don't use wine. Right? We use grape juice. And I don't have anything against offering grape juice as a part of the Lord's Supper. Don't get me wrong. But we need to think 
All Christians need to think about those types of substitutions that we make. All of us need to think carefully. When the Bible says, drink wine, and when we say, but, 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 we think we should do grape juice. Remember, this whole mess started because of an argument over which fruit man could or could not eat. This whole situation got rolling because there was a a disagreement over, hath God said? Has God said such and such? No, no, no. He wasn't thinking rightly. When God told you to not eat that fruit in the garden, he wasn't thinking rightly. He was actually keeping something from You'd be much better off eating that. That's the kind of argument that Christians often make, well-intended, well-meaning Christians make, in arguing for using grape juice. Yeah, yeah, I know the Bible says wine, but, 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 we need to think about brothers and sisters struggling with alcoholism, struggling with this, struggling with that. I'm just saying we need to think about that and talk about that and be intentional about it and missional thoughtful about those types of casual substitutions and not just say, yes, yeah, the way we've done. Because I think it does, now I'm backing off. This is me backing off. Okay. Now I think it does call into question and, and somewhat confuse some of the language that's used in talking about the elements Here in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You can't have a part in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? That's a very interesting way of of putting that. Jesus uh, drank the cup of the Lord and refused the cup of demons in the desert. Think about Jesus' temptation for a second and, 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 and follow along with me. Because when Paul was writing, he wasn't just thinking of stuff randomly to say. He was drawing from the words, the life, the experience of Jesus. What this is talking about here is Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And how does he tempted? Hey, Jesus, why don't you... Take these rocks and make them into bread. Satan didn't just have a magic eight ball and shake it up and it came up bread for that. He chose a communion element for good reason. Jesus refuses the bread of Satan in the desert during his temptation. And so the argument here that's being made is since Jesus didn't say, well, I'm Jesus, I can... I can take Satan's suggestion on the recipe for these, this rock bread and I can make bread out of these rocks and eat it and I'm strong enough to handle this. I, I, I don't have any problem with this. No. Jesus did not take Satan's recommendations on his diet. And since he didn't think he was strong enough to do that, the question Paul asks, are you stronger than Jesus by choosing to... Uh, to do this. Evidently, they were people in Corinth who felt like they were showing off by going into the demonic temples with their their friends. They were trying to evangelize, of course. And 
drinking down and participating in the demonic worship that was happening in the temples. Paul warns them against that sort of nonsense. So obviously, there are situations where you can go too far in the way you approach the elements. Yeah, they were drinking wine when they were in the demonic temple, but that didn't make it the right thing to do. It was definitely a matter of the heart that was primary here. And that's what I want you to hear me saying, is that it's a matter of the heart and the conscience that is primary in this situation of understanding bread or wine, exactly which kind of bread, exactly which kind of wine. It's about the heart. Say that back to me. It's about the heart. Thank you. So as we said last week, if you try and approach these topics head on, you'll get a headache. And you'll end up splitting right down the middle, just like the church has done over and over and over again in talking about the sacraments. But if you look at the big picture, the story of God, the things that fence in the Lord's Supper, and look at how united the scriptures are in its language about it. Look at what's explicit, what's implicit. Look at the nature and origin of the Lord's Supper. Well then, even if we end up disagreeing about some of the elements and circumstances and how often you celebrate the Lord's Supper, we'll still understand why. And we'll understand the big picture of how the Lord's Supper is supported and celebrated in Scripture. And then together we can celebrate Jesus and tell the good news to our neighbors and show them what the grace of God looks like as it's poured in us and out of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for connecting it to these sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And thank you that we just don't ever want to separate those out. Never can the Lord's Supper and baptism be separated from your word. As we've talked this week about the gospel-made food, Entering into us and us becoming more like Christ. That's my prayer today. That this congregation will become more like Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. In their suffering on behalf of one another and their neighbor. And their celebration victory as Christ raises them, changes hearts, transforms lives all around us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.